And we're back. And we are thrilled to welcome to the Surf and Sales podcast, my virtual digital LinkedIn friend. One day, maybe we'll be an in-person friend as well. Keith Daw, who is the CEO and founder of Be Kinetic. What's up, Keith? Welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me. And yes, we'll have to make that happen much more quickly here. Uh, maybe I can't get down to Texas in October. We'll see how it works. Well, we'll see. If it's not, uh, you know, the Surf and Sales founder event, Coming up in October, maybe it'll be the Surf and Sales Summit events in November or sometime in 2023. We'll see. Hopefully, we can uh, we can drag you out there. Tell a little, everybody who's here a little bit about you know what the work is that you do with Be Kinetic right now. All right. So the punchy version would be. I'm a reformed sales trainer of 10 years that recognizes there's all kinds of things that could have and should have been done before, during, and after uh, that leadership didn't know to think about, the training company may not have thought about, and all these little gaps and nuances. And it can be what the things that affect the stickiness of the training and blah, blah, blah. So I'm focusing on that fractional, if you will, to be able to come in and say, you talked about delegation, but you all suck at it. But you talked about communication, but you all suck at it. And and helping them bridge the gaps between a lot of the things that you all are doing. So I tend to find myself as a as that specialist bolt-on or add-on to other training or other coaching or other endeavors. And then for some of the smaller companies, just the, I'm not really sure where to start, who to trust, where to follow and all that, just helping them put together an advisory board and get connected to all the right people. So fuck, and then, why, are we, why are we having him on? He's going to compete with me. What yeah, the fuck I have a great, on? I have a great question that I was just taking notes on. This will go to Keith first, okay. and Richard could chime in if he wants. How do sales trainers think about others in their space? How do you look at somebody like Richard or somebody like whoever and say, "Okay, this person does this. I'm doing this similar thing, or I'm doing something a little bit different." How do how do sales trainers look at the competition? So putting myself back in the shoes before I started the company, I, I think there were some that you respected. You're like, all right, you do something along the lines of or in the general theme or vibe I do, we, you know, to each their own. And there was a mutual respect. And then there are the others that were the the hacks that it really burned you when they got hired instead of you. And um, so I think it was really dependent. Uh, Richard, to your point. I'm actually not looking to do any sales training. I would be referring sales training to somebody else. And I think building on what Scott said, to me, it would be what is the vibe or the style of the trainer, right? We have some very big personalities out there on LinkedIn. There are some a little more reserved, which makes more sense for a copier company versus a mechanical engineer, right? And so I think it's finding that proper fit. What is the delivery style? I mean, there's all kinds of different uh, options out there. And on any given day, I could make a referral to one of six or seven and feel pretty confident that they're going to kill it for my client. I'm doing this and let's work in tandem. So cool. to me, that would also be who's the person who doesn't want to over try to overshadow, who wants to be part of the team, or who's also not going to steal my try to steal my client, because obviously I've been in that realm before, too. Yeah, yeah, no, I would agree. I I want to answer Scott's question and then I want to ask, because I think people are interested, right? Because And I, I just commoditize us by saying we're do the same thing and you just said we're different. I, I want to give, give you that opportunity to explain how you're approaching the market, because I think it's important, uh, one, so people get it, but two, for people who are trying to go out and build their own whatever, 
how do you differentiate in a space that's pretty sad? I mean, there's a lot of sales, like, you, you know, you can hit a stick with them, right? Like you can throw a stick and hit somebody. So I, I think that differentiation piece matters. Um, and I know you're on that origin journey of that. Um, to Scott's point and, and to Keith's point, same thing. Uh, there are certain people that I will refer um, when I when I run through <clears throat> sessions with clients. I will, you know, I will be the first to tell them that you know, you know, as we go through this stuff, if it's a good fit, great. And if it's not, that's okay. And let me know because we all know our swim lanes, right? Like we know, I know that I do certain things. Like someone wants me to come in and teach how to do better demos. I could cobble something together, but that's not what I do. I'd rather find someone who really does that and refer someone to them, knowing that that's just good karma, right? It's good karma for the prospect. It's good karma for someone like Keith, if that's what he does. And um, it's good karma for me because I've been around long enough to know it'll come back. Like, oh, four years ago, you once referred me to somebody such and such. And da, 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 da. So, um, so that's good. So what what is your differentiator thing? It's a saturated market. How did you differentiate? Yeah. How are you differentiating? And and maybe give advice to people on how you decide to differentiate. So how I differentiate, if you will, is kind of twofold. One was I left the sales training game because there were positive things in there and there were flaws in there. And I wanted to address the flaws, see a need, fill a need. But then secondarily, how I address it was based upon all of the, the, the influx of messages I got from you know, then prospective clients. Where like, hey, I got a team of 15 people. Can you train us? To do, 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 do. I'm like, I could. I have three different methodologies memorized word for word in my head. Which one do you hang on? Why do you want sales training? Well, oh, so what I found is by doing that, I actually learned that there's a whole bunch of other fundamental crap in their business that is broken, needs to be addressed, or the sales training is going to fail. What's broken? What do you see over and over again that's still broken? The well, other than just the fact that most of them don't have a strategy or they're you know, got a hope wish that somebody's going to write them a big check, right? Uh, I, I definitely think a lot of them it's the fundamentals, it's the stuff that you and I and we've all learned over the years or been taught formally. Number one is communication, understanding everything that's involved in communication and how it permeates through an organization. And by the way, the how the, the departments and the teams reflect is probably going to be representative of the leadership. People tend to hire people that are very similar to them in styles and the communication behavior. So if you have a toxic personality and behavior, you're going to tend to hire and or endure a lot more of that. And then when the good ones get in, obviously they bounce. So a lot of communication issues and problems within the, uh, within the organizations. Delegation. Uh, I mean, I don't know how much of a surprise that it floored me just about every organization that I've worked with over the last 12 years has issues with, but it seems like it's becoming more and more of a problem where people are just dropping stuff in somebody's lap and magically hoping he's going to fix. And then they got no responsibility. I I, I gave it to Scott. I told him he needs by end of week. I don't know why it didn't get done. So but I'm the one that did a crappy job. And so I think these are the kind of things that I'm like, I can help make big changes and it complements the sales training. It's a, we're covering all of this and Keith's going to go way deeper. We're all granular in these two or three areas, which complements the training. And that's some of the stuff that I've done. So are you, frankly, it's a lot more. So are you really coming in at this somewhere between management and executive coaching and training and maybe how it works? And because obviously you're, you might be skewed towards the sales org because that's just where you spend a lot of your time. 
is that what you're doing? I'm still trying to figure out. I hear communication yeah, yeah. all so, the time and shit like that, but like, what does it really mean? So, <laughs> what does it really mean? Um, actually, I'm not really doing much coaching and advi- uh, coaching and training. It's really an advi- strategic advisory role. Um, that's what that's what I'm trying to get to. Okay. Yeah, it's a strategic God, advisory role. So okay. every you're gonna compete with Scott is what I'm hearing. You're not competing with Richard. <laughs> he just changed his mind. He was like, competing with Richard is too hard. I can easily compete with Scott, though. Right. I can take that guy down in a heartbeat. Yeah. So yeah. But, but all of our but, but all of our business in our first year, all of our business, and I'm so grateful for this, has come from referrals or direct in direct. And I may have somebody for you. Now that I understand your swim lane, I have a client who was asking me about training like this. So I actually we should talk offline. Absolutely. Appreciate that. And and I think this will kind of help. So people are reaching out. Hey, I have it was a it was an owner of an architecture firm. Hey, I have a buddy of mine that owns this, you know, land development company and they're having problems and issues, some of its process and some of its people. Okay. So I had the convo come to find out the things that were happening. It was more of an HR issue. There were other things that were going on. And like, let me introduce you to one of my partners. They are the perfect fit to help you walk through the specifics and make sure it's done correctly. Because I have opinions. They may or may not be the right things. Send it to that person. Both parties were super appreciative of making the intro. Oh, and, and by the way, we had a little rev share thing going on in the background. So at that point, by doing the right thing to help one of my contacts with someone that was important in their world, I put them in touch with the exact person they needed. I still got paid for my 45 minutes and, and recognizing that sometimes what they bring to me, is absolutely stuff that we can knock out. It's in our wheelhouse all day, every day, or when, and if do I bring somebody else in to join the team as an extension of ours, or just refer them out directly. So these are the partnerships that I've also been creating. And it's why I monitor who's the one that has the great product, the great service, who has the right touch or the feel so that I can then say, I, I I strongly recommend you talk to this person about these things. In fact, I'll make the intro to make it easy and to make sure that Mr. or Mrs. Leadership, you don't botch this one like you have everything else prior to me coming on board. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit of handholding in some cases, a little bit of that advisory role, but most of them are usually at a critical part. If I don't do something and do something different now, bigger problems are going to have. So it makes it easier for me to get them to share and then get them in touch with the right people to fix their problems. Is part is part of the shift, part of the reason for the shift, because it's so frustrating to, to do your part, deliver training, and then hear about secondhand how it didn't get implemented the right way or it's not not working and you feel like you've lost some of the locus of control and over a period of five, 10, 15 years, you're finally just like, what am I supposed to do here? <laughs> uh, there, there is a part of that. I mean, I've had times where I was going through a training session, like an ongoing, and, and here's this person that's two weeks into the training and they say something brilliant and really connect the dots and everybody's like, oh. and then here's this person that's been there for six, every week for six months and they ask the stupidest question possible and everybody looks at them like, where have you? So yes, there were times when those things frustrated because you were into a, I don't want to work with those companies anymore, right? I don't want, I have the option now of saying, you know what? I have two other sales traders. Both of them are awesome. Let me refer you to them and hopefully they can deal with that situation and and fix it for you, being very candid. But where I'm also thinking about is what are the things that led up to you deciding one day that, holy crap, I got to spend a lot of money on sales training. 
because those are the things that are broken. Those are the things you're probably overshadowed because you went to a conference or HR said or, or whatever. I want to find out what are those fundamental, the small things that keep festering inside the business and let's fix those so how are while you, we're doing. So how are you getting into those people's head? What is what is the, the mindset of those founders or VPs? And how are you kind of probing and asking the right questions to finally crack the, that kind of conversation and, and hopefully deal open? So part of it is just me asking them that really tongue-in-cheek, sarcastic questions, kind of a presumptive. So when you've done this and this with your team to get this result, like, how's that worked? Oh, uh, we haven't done that. Oh, really? And and usually it's just that simple. And I used to do some similar things for, you know, you know, back in the day, you know, a lot too. But those candid conversations where it's not making assumptions, but you're making assumptions, they start to either get really defensive. Oh, yeah, we've got the perfect. And, you know, they're full of it or it's an op. And that's probably disqualifying them in my book. If you're already lying to me on a Zoom call that you're doing it, even though your eyes are looking away and I know you're lying, probably not going to work for us. But at the same time, now they're like, you know, they really thought about it that way. Nobody's ever phrased it that way. Well, we've been trying to work on it. We kind of did. Like, what, what's getting in the way? But do and, you think, and that. Do you think that, that they know this and they've been afraid to admit it? Or do you think it's they don't know what they don't know? I think it's about half and half. I, I think at some point somebody calls them out a little bit and it's finally like, you know what? Third time I've heard this. I need to just own it and do something about it. And then I think there's a lot of them just I, just a completely different perspective. They've been going through with their blinders on, doing what they've always been doing, getting the results they've always been getting. And they've been content with that until they recognize there was perhaps a whole nother level or another gear involved. And then they're curious. Let's, so let's talk about those folks, right? Because I, I love talking about them. And, and it's interesting because you're, you know, I'm reading a couple of books. I'm reading... Um, the 48 Laws of Human Behavior, which is different than the Laws of Power by the same guy, Robert Greene. And then I'm reading this, this mindset thing for, for um, kid athletes. Like, you know, what do you put in for, the, for that kind of stuff? How hard is it? Or let me ask you this way. When do those founders who think they know what they're doing finally get it? Even though they've hired you, they paid you to come in and they still want to argue with you to say, no, 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 you don't understand. I made this pretty little baby, you know, that turns off the light switch, you know. Um, when do they finally sort of get it? I, I think it's usually when the person inside the organization that they're like, yeah, this, there's usually one or two people inside their, uh, their on their team. Could be a, a salesperson, could be a customer service ops or whatever. It's usually when the person they're least expect to have the aha moment comes across and says, you know what? I was talking to Keith or someone on his team and we did this and wow. It's usually when they see someone else on their team having that aha moment or that epiphany and then they start to recognize, yeah, maybe maybe this was right. Maybe there was a different way or a better way to be able to do it. I, I think they have a hard time being a little vulnerable. Maybe it's just they don't want to give me credit, whatever the case. But there usually ends up being a secondary person. And sometimes it's a surprising. Uh, I had one client we worked with for a couple of months where they were about ready to fire this person. And last week, they just they just promoted them. You know, so it's I think funny it's because I hear this all like, the time, like, 
people like Scott, how many times have you and I ever been in a sales leadership role? We've told people what they need to do. They don't like to hear it. They let us go. And then they bring in the next person who either does what we already told them to do or they don't do it. And then they come in and they don't come, they don't come crawling back to us, let's face it. But we just sit back and laugh and go, you guys just wasted like another 18 months. I, I, I just like when I get the notes like six to 18 months later and it's like, you were right. <laughs> it's just like yes. tail between the legs. Right. But it's fine. But that's the part, right? That's the part I really wish leadership and doesn't have to be a founder would get more open to right and and be willing to be vulnerable to be wrong um, which is why Keith I'm really excited about what you're doing and I don't think you're going to walk in you know you can't make anybody do this the people who come to you are asking you for help right that's the best thing about being a trainer is they actually pay you to tell them where they're wrong like there's you know it's a great stroke to, to our egos is you know. And that's why I went advisor. That's why I went with the advisor, because in some cases, depending upon their experiences, they're like, oh, well, you're just the trainer, which is, you know, you know, hired help. At the same time, it's you, you go to an advisor, you kind of expect the advisor is going to give you some tough love. And, and so I'm intentionally using that phrase because you don't pay me to give you what you tell me to do. You pay me to tell you what you need to do or what you don't already know or to challenge in those cases. Um, but then I have to be able to back, you know, back it up. So if I challenge you on something, either I need to deliver, or that's where I bring in the expert or specialist from the network to say, I can do it. And here's the person that's going to work with me, work with you to be sure that happens. So the power of my network, both from a referral source and from a, uh, yeah, I can do that. Oh crap. How am I going to do this to make sure that I have that expert, that person we can bring in to, to help them out. What? What finally kind of tipped you over the edge to say, you know what, I'm going to bet on myself. I'm going to go all in and, and, and do this. And, and how scary is, is that, or was that, um, I think you're coming up on your one year anniversary in doing yeah. that. So talk a little Terrible. bit about, about that journey, because there's so many sales leaders who think about that or have done it or are doing it. Um, talk a little bit about that journey and what it was like for you. Okay, well, that'd be fun. So probably, I would say late May, early June of 2020, started thinking, you know what, been a good run, doing a lot of stuff, things I love, things I don't want to, you know, don't love. And is this what I want to keep on doing for you know, the rest of my life or, or, or what I want to do? And then it just kind of dawned on me as I started seeing certain VPs of sales and such that we were working with, they were doing phenomenal jobs. And then I see other companies in the region who were struggling. I'm like, maybe I could take all this brilliant sales trainer and producer knowledge. What if I could be that catalyst for change and be that VP of sales that comes in and helps them finally do all the things and launch? And so I applied to three different positions. One of them, they just found, they, I was kind of late to the kind of late to the to, to the to the game. They already had somebody that they really liked. Not too bad. The other two, I was just blown away at how horrible their vetting process and the hiring process was. They had a hiring manager that had a checklist essentially of twelve different things, and I hit ten of the twelve. The two that I didn't hit, between us, who cares? But there's this whole laundry list of things that one of the other executives later on found out says, I would much rather have all of those things and your experience, but because it had a checklist, it didn't. 
I didn't I qualify to get into yeah, Scott and I always talk about how we love to be interviewed. If we can make a ton of money just doing interviews, it's kind of like if someone could pay, it's like the SAT test, pay the kid to go take the SAT test, right? If we could, if we could get paid to be the interview, we'd do it um, ethically, of course. Uh, but it's interesting for people who have been in sales and leadership in life. I think you start to recognize when that happens, you actually know how to answer the question, even if it's not 100% true. Tell me about a time when you did blah, or, you know, usually we have stories, but it's, it's interesting. And, you know, I agree with you, but what made you, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, what made you finally go, I'm cutting the cord though. Like, had you already been building this up on the side as Scott sort of advises? Um, no, I I wasn't go cold Turkey like I did. Oh, I, yeah, I, I went cold turkey. I mean, I, so I had, you know, I'd spoken to the employer. Hey, it's been, I'm thinking about completely, you know, obviously disappointed. Stop, 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 stop. You get, I'm going to, I'm going to nail you down. I'm going to go Richard on you for a second, you know? So, um, but what, what was the moment that you said, this is ridiculous. I'm going to go do this on my own. I can do it better. So I think the moment was when I when I when I got rejected for two VP of sales positions that I was extremely highly qualified for because of all the crap in the, in their process, and that's when I said, you know what, I have this company that I created as kind of a little might need it or want it someday. Thought it was a cool idea. Um, incidentally, Scott down in Tamarindo is where I actually had the epiphany of starting Be Kinetic. Two types of energy: potential and kinetic. Why be potential if you can be kinetic? So Richard, to your point, I started getting frustrated. Like I have all this potential. I have all this skill, Jack of a bunch of different trades. How do I take it instead of trying to find the position? Why don't I make a, create the company that I already have to fix the fundamental problems that kept me from helping these companies grow? I'm just going to do it. Stop one second. So, cause you'll give me really long answers and Scott knows I hate them. So I'll interrupt you and you can tell me to, you know, fuck off if you want. So, um, so either one of you can. So you went, so this is the part, cause you go back to this mindset thing. So here you are, you're highly qualified for two roles. You get rejected, which we know does not feel good. Right. And it's a, it's a negative place to be. And yet you had it in your head to have enough courage and confidence to go, you know, I can do this anyway, where I think a lot of people struggle there. Like they, they get pushed down and that's the hardest place in my head to turn this around. What's in Keith's mindset that made you go, I got this? So part of it was the fact that I've created a company from scratch 15 years ago. I know what things ultimately you know, were the, you know, part of the demise. And now before I built it from scratch, now I can build it from experience. I have a wealth of knowledge for experts if I needed to reach out to. And I had a couple mentors in the in the area that I sat down and just laid it all out. And each of them said, stop overthinking it. You have this, you need it. By the way, I might have a referral. So then on pure faith, I just said, screw it. Let's make this happen. That's and the part I think for in them, that case, at least yeah. what going, all, go going all it. in at that point. Yeah. But what's the part that made you go screw it? Because a lot of people would be like, okay, I'll take a consultant role. Like Scott's the guy who's like, hmm, before I cut the W-2, let me go do this role, start building my business on the side. Why did you, were you already, had you already been unemployed at that point? And so you were looking was that part of it? No. Okay. So again, I was, I was, that mindset yeah, I was amazing. Like, 
Yeah. I was phasing I was phasing out of my current role. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was phasing out of the current role and recognize, all right, I need to make a decision, go work for somebody else or create my own company. If I'm going to do it, what the hell am I going to do so that I don't, you know, have a freak out panic attack? But ultimately it was just that that the people I turn to and look at as advisors that are smarter than me, that I trust, basically saying, shut up, you got this, and we're here behind you. I I, I went on faith. I so don't necessarily a, recommend you, that for everybody. Yeah. But you had refer, you had, I call it sort of your personal board of directors, right? You had these mentors yeah. and they helped keep, yeah. push you to that edge, which was similar to me. Like when this happened to me, it kind of fell in my lap and, and Barrows was the guy who said, you can do this. And that's all I needed to hear. So, um, yeah, there were, there was, yeah, probably those four key people that I trust. I mean, a regional bank press. I mean, these, these are people that I hold high, high regard and they're just like, just shut up and do it. It'll be okay. Um, and, and we've got your back if you need it too. And, and so those were the things that ultimately gave me some faith, but it was the most exciting and exhilarating thing and the most terrifying thing because we all have some baggage and head trash. And I know what happened in 09 when market crashed and the things I didn't know about my business like, you know, that, that was a, you know, a, a dumpster fire. So not wanting to go back, but also using that as what do I do differently and who do I need along by my side to make sure that happens? Let's not discredit the healing waters of Costa Rica, by the way, and the impact, <laughs> and the impact that Tamarindo had on Keith's confidence and motivation to, to go down this, uh, down this route. So uh, how do you figure out as you're getting started how does one figure out how to structure their contracts how do you figure out how to price your services or, or your products if you will dig into that a little bit you know this is something that i get asked all the time by people who are dabbling in coaching or training or whatever is like how do i put a price on my time basically as well as what i know how did you think about that? So with regards to the contracts, I, I did I do not want to get creative. I went straight to a, a, a friend of mine who's a contract attorney. And I said, look, I, I need all these standard things. How do I make sure? Right. So I made sure those things were handled. I didn't want to guess. Um, I found a couple of templates, you know, if you will, that, you know, some colleagues had shared with me, uh, took out the stuff I didn't like, then bounced it by legal. Uh, but with regards to the rest of it, I... I don't, I don't know. I, I get a little, I get a little clever sometimes, or at least I think I'm clever. I, I took people in my network that I felt would replicate or be close to that ideal prospect. And I said, oh, you have this title. Hey, can I bounce something by you? I'm thinking about putting together something for these types of people that are dealing with this kind of issue. Can I bounce it by and see what you think and you know what I should price it at? Or what do you think people would invest in it? And these are people, again, close in the network who were happy to be the sounding board. Yes, whatever we can do to help you with your new business, flattered. And about 20 minutes in, they gave me all the information and they said, you know what, in, in fact, I'd be curious about learning how. So I intentionally took some people in the network that I felt matched the personas of who I'd be targeting from a prospect, used them as a focus group. Some of them gave me some great insight and, and some of them actually started a conversation about having me help them as a result. Did you so did you I, I didn't that the, did you find that the dollar figure you had in your head was higher or lower than what those folks were telling you? Uh, 
probably half and half. There was one person where they said, hey, I'd probably pay up to X. And I'm like, wow, that was almost twice what I was thinking. Good to know. The next person I asked the same question to, similar persona, was half of what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. So then it also made me look at the size of the company, you know, sub one and a half million. And the one who said, oh, I would pay you $2,000 a month for that. That person was a 10 million company that was hungry to get to 25, as opposed to the one that was one and a half, hoping they could get the three. So I think the mindset of where the where the the CEO in this case, where the, their mindset helped determine whether or not what they were willing to invest to get help from anybody, whether it's me or somebody yeah. else. So right or wrong, I, I just kind of I kind of went a little trial and error based upon here's what the market's telling me. These types of clients are willing to pay this. These types of clients are willing to pay this. Do I find a happy medium? Or do I have a group a group of each? And I and again, I took in kind of a small, medium, large. And then looking at the what where we made the impact, where we made the most profit, uh, who we give the referrals. Because when you think about your clients, your ideal prospects are probably going to you know, refer you to others similar. When I had some of the smaller, they made great referrals, but they may have been to, to organizations that had a lot of things they need to figure out before I could help them. Yeah. Scott, how did you do it? How did you build your pricing model? I didn't do it that way at all. I sort of picked a number that was super, super low that I felt somewhat comfortable with. And then I had one person tell me, you need to double that. And so I tried that and that was my initial price point. And then I'd get comfortable with that price point and get a few more people to pay it. And then I'd raise it. And that became my new normal. Yeah. And then I'd raise it again. And, and then, so I sort of inchwormed my way to where my pricing is now. Yeah. You're welcome. I'm glad I gave you that advice. You weren't the person. <laughs> Good try, Richard. You weren't even the person. Dude. Uh, Keith, what, tell me about the uh, SKO circuit and tour. What have you learned about doing some of these SKOs and, and uh, you know, company-wide speeches and paid engagements and that kind of thing. What? Give me some dirt on what it's like to do those good, bad, and the ugly. So I think it really depends upon what exactly is the expectation uh, and being crystal clear. Uh, you're going to pay me X. I'm going to get up and talk about why. How is this going to impact your business? And being emphatic about it. And, and while I'd like to think that I did a really good job of it before, now that it's the, oh yeah, I'm going to take four days out of my business and go travel. I want to be crystal clear. What is the impact for you, for them, and for me if we do this? Uh, because I've had times where I've gone up there and lit the stage up. People were happy, got paid a lot of money. Nothing changed. Nothing happened. I'm like, well, thanks. But, and so it's kind of deflating for me. Like I put all this effort and all this work, prepping it, get up there. Yay, that was fun. All right, next. So I, I'd want to say if you're if you're going to be speaking at it, just make sure it's the right group, right organization, and you're setting yourself and them up for success. Secondarily, make sure it's at a cool location. Um, I've done a few of those things in towns and I'm like, okay, the nicest hotel is about two and a half stars on a good day. You know, so I, I think we're also just, you, it, to me, it's just demoralizing if you're going to go out in the middle of, you know, anywhere. It's like a, it's um, like a, it's like a once famous rock band playing the Cash Creek Casino, Richard. 
Yeah, pretty much. Although it sounds like it sounds like Keith is saying it's it's less than Cash Creek Casino. You know, it, it's like it's like Motel Six Plus, right? Yeah. Where they actually have a conference room at the Motel Six. Interesting though. Do you think they're worth it? What's that? Do you think SKOs are worth it? To whom? To, to anybody. To Great question. It's worth it to me and you. We get paid, like you know. But is it yeah. worth it for the organization to spend that much money on something that, you know, they could probably spend it in a whole lot of other places? I I would say it depends upon who's running it and and how successful. I have one company that I worked with for almost, almost eight years in, in my previous role. They had me down to, to travel. We did it remotely. We've done it in person. To me, they did a fantastic job of making sure we tied in. They're maximizing every minute of my time that they're paying for. We worked together to create it. The teams benefited. And, and collectively, they had already worked remotely. So this is great times for them to collaborate and do all that. I, I would give them kudos. But I've also seen some others where it's just kind of like, oh, here we go again. Time And, and the, the mindset of the people are like, I'm here because I have to be, not because it's, this could have been an email. Um, so what is the return on many of them? Probably not what the executive leadership thinks it is or wants it to be, but I don't know if they actually have ways to get eyes on, on, on whether or not they're wasting money. I, I think that goes, I think that actually ties back to what you're trying to teach them as you go in and work with these organizations on communication style of like, what are we trying to get out of this? How do we communicate that? SKO could be an option. There are probably other things that you're going to advise them to do. Wait a minute. Here's, or maybe this is a better way, but um, we need to, we need to wrap. So Keith, um, in a second, we'll let you ask the couple of questions of us, but a uh, huge shout out to our sponsors of Outreach, Sendoso and Scratchpad. We appreciate them as always for supporting us. Uh, be sure to check out surfandsales.com forward slash Texas for the founders only event that's happening in October. And of course, surfandsales.com for our regular surf and sales events in Tamarindo, Costa Rica. So, uh, Keith, what, you know, what would you like to ask us? So I, I saw something about debates on ROI on, yeah. and I'm kind of curious how that, how that came about and what comes. Uh, so who's right and who's wrong on, on, on ROI on that debate? I, I think Scott, you're not good. Go ahead, Scott. You go first. Well, you're the one who said that ROI is dead. Yes. You should probably explain yourself. Yeah. First. So, so for me, um, it's a dead phrase because every person who ever asked me about it says, well, when I tell you this number, are you going to believe me? They all say no. They all, and I say, great, then let's talk about the economic impact of what we're going to do. Because nobody cares about ROI. They never believe the R, they only see the I. That doesn't mean that there's not a way to spin it, which is kind of what I do. And I just like to be, you know, snarky about stuff. I posted something the other day about it. And uh, someone, uh, his name's David. And he said, you know, ROI really stands for what's the return on inaction. And I'm like, oh, that's genius. Like, that's a great way yeah. to flip that back. Um, politely um so it's really not a because it was me and john barrows and scott it's one of those things where we sort of take sides for the sake of like just drawing attention to ourselves because we're fucking egomaniacs and you know um you know just 
need love and attention to ourselves. Um, but I think it's, you know, it depends on how you position it, right? Like, I think that's the big piece of how do you use it? How do you position it? If someone asks me ROI and they want me to give them some number, I have a different kind of conversation to explain what they're asking for and change the phraseology to economic impact because that word impact is more impactful than return. And it, it, in some cases, it does the same thing. So. See, Richard Keith just likes to play the semantics game. Yes, all the time. It's his favorite thing in the world is to like take a phrase and then tinker it, tweak it a little bit, and then wrap it up and be like, no, it's actually this other thing. So I don't believe that the ROI is dead whatsoever, but I don't give somebody the ROI and say, hey, this is what you should get. I would ask somebody, do you think it's possible that this number is what you would get? And if then they said no, I'd say, okay, well, what do you think is possible? Go ahead, cut it in half. Cut it by 90% if you want. Cut my ROI number by 90%. You're still massively positive if you were to do this. So I, if somebody is giving me the number and telling me, yes, I believe that. Yes, I, I believe that that is possible. I don't believe this other thing. As long as my solution or my product still makes sense, I'm ahead. I'm winning that kind of uh, conversation. And their buy-in is total at that point in time. It's like, you gave me the number, Keith. You told me that it would be this, right? So I think it's just a little bit of a semantics game. And I do the same thing that, that Scott does. I just do it in a much more detailed, long-winded way. Scott's very good at taking things and positioning it in a way that's slightly more conversational where mine is a little bit more, not transactional, but sort of step-by-step, -step, right? Like sort of follow the bouncing ball approach. So, which, which, you know, so it's curious. Yeah. Go ahead, Kim. Yeah. Uh, I was curious, A, because I didn't see how the story ended. So I wanted to, to make sure I got it. But I, I see ROI oftentimes, I think is an, an acronym that's just thrown out there all the time. But I don't know if everybody understands exactly what it is. It means how it means to them. So I was curious because I hear it. And it's I'm a, bull, like, it's a bullshit acronym that anybody who's about to pay somebody for something thinks they can use to negotiate with a salesperson. That's what it is. Hmm. In fact, I've, and again, you and I and Scott could do this if it got to that stage. There's been a couple of times where I've talked to the CFO and I'm like, how do you teach your salesperson to answer the, what's the ROI of your question, of your service? And they're like, well, I, we don't teach. I'm like, well, so why? Like, so like, well, I can do that. Would you like that? And so it's a little bit to what Scott does, sort of getting them to admit that they're just asking for the sake of asking because they've been told to ask. And it intimidates salespeople and they know that. So to me, it's it's probably the easiest question to answer and so hard because nobody talks about how do you do it. Right. I, I like the economic impact too. You know, I'm all about in, impact. And part of it is just, and, and I'll, I'll share this with others in case it makes a difference in their selling is how are we going to know emphatically that this has worked? And the reason I've also kind of leaned in that way a little bit is, a, not to get in the ROI trap, but there have been some of those 
anecdotal and intangibles that they recognize and they see. You know, some of the things I'm doing can affect mindset, morale, and that ultimately can you know impact the revenue. And then there's some direct revenue facing. So there yep. have been some times where we need to see this to justify the expense. But if we don't see these intangible, hard to measure items happen within the team, then that means adoption is not happening and hence the ROI is not there. So I, me just making sure I'm using the best of the best wording or different perspectives to navigate through that trap of the ROI thing. So thank you. Cool. That was a good, good, good way to end it. So Keith, how can people get a hold of you, man? Uh, LinkedIn is probably the best and the easiest way. There's only eight letters. So if you can't find me on LinkedIn, no, I'm not the attorney down in Jacksonville. We've, he and I have had a good laughs about that, but, or just put my name into Google. The top five links are all to me. So Keith Daw, CEO, founder of B Kinetic. We'll see you next time on the Surf and Sales podcast. Thanks everybody. Thanks Keith. Talk soon.